Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Indie Football Podcast. This week I'm joined by Chief Football Writer Miguel Delaney, Sports Feature Writer Vitushan Ahantaraja, and making their season debuts, senior football correspondent Melissa Reddy and northern football correspondent Mark Critchley. OK, well, we promised that we're not going to be doing coronavirus-themed podcasts for the next three months because, uh, obviously, that would be incredibly depressing. But we wanted to stick with the theme this week because, obviously, there has been so much news uh, in the football world and we can hopefully offer you some insight in some of the massive decisions currently being taken behind closed doors. Uh, should we start with the latest from the Premier League? Because, uh, Miguel, there now appears to be a consensus that when top flight football does come back, it's going to be behind closed doors. The last I heard, I think more and more people involved are actually coming around to the idea. And that comes from people discussing this with the football authorities and the government side, right down now to the players, where there seems to be more of a will to get back. And I suppose this, this is inevitable, really. The longer this kind of goes on, and it hasn't gone on that long yet in this country, um, boredom would set in and that would start to actually override concerns about health uh, but I suppose the big obstruction to actually playing games behind, behind closed doors is that is whether anyone uh, contracts coronavirus again so that's the really and that's why I think it still won't happen for a few weeks but I now think it's much more likely we'll see a situation where we're back watching Premier League games behind closed doors and actually I wonder will they let journalists in even though it's obviously a sideline concern for everyone except us um, or not a concern at all. Uh, but yeah, I can see that maybe from mid-May on. Um, I suppose, again, it, it depends how this pans out. As Chefferin said last week, it's not up to us, but this is at least what they're trying to put in place. And, and there's even, a, um, from what I've heard, there's even kind of will from both the Premier League. I mean, not, not just, I suppose, the inherent selfishness of issues like the, uh, or not sel- selfishness, maybe a bit hard, maybe a bit harsh, but not just to kind of the, the concern about issues like uh, the TV broadcasting deals, but as much because they realize it will actually restore a little bit of normality to people's lives and a bit of structure as well. Maybe can be a step on what may, may well be a very long road to, uh, to getting back to normal in general. Do you think they're worried about um, a repeat of the scenes we saw in Paris after the Champions League, where obviously people just thought, I'll sod it, I'll go and, you know, watch the game outside the stadium and, and congregate there. Or do you think that they now think because there's been this period of self-isolation and essentially lockdown, that that's a concern they can kind of, you know, not, not worry about? Well, I mean, well, that, that was only two weeks ago. And it's amazing how much the world has changed uh, since then. It, it feels so much longer ago. And even the, the, the very idea of like, a congregation of fans outside a, outside a stadium like that now already feels so much more uh, almost taboo. Obviously, we've all, we've all seen the footage over the last few days of you know, people in parks and all that. But, it, but it, and, you know, I suppose people will continue to kind of defy all these measures. But it does feel as if a penny has dropped for a lot more people. Uh, and as, uh, on the other side, 
you'd have to imagine if, and I have heard people in government are pushing for football to come back because of the lift it would give the nation. Uh, you'd have to imagine if they were to do it, though, there'd be all sorts of measures introduced to ensure that there wasn't masses of people uh, congregating outside grounds. Melissa, you've obviously written a series of pieces this week on uh, what football clubs and what football players are doing in, in the here and now. Um, on players, what do we know about how players are keeping fit and what's all this talk about football isolation camps? Yeah, all players obviously have individual programs. Clubs have armed them with extra equipment. You know, most of them have home gyms and stuff, but the younger players, they've been given what bikes. They've basically tried to create a level playing field for everyone in terms of equipment and trying to ensure as much as possible that that there's a level of physicality across the squad that's sort of the same. The issue is that no matter how much you work out, and, and a lot of that is about body composition, just keeping your body fat and your, your muscle percentage at a regular level, it's still not preparing you for football. In order to be prepared for football, you have to train. You have to do your um, you know, drills as a right back where you defend one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, you've got to beat your man and overlap, put in a cross, do all that kind of stuff. Without that, your muscle memory for the actual football is gone. What I was told is effectively football's in an off season now. And as we all understand with an off season, no matter how much players are doing while they're away on their breaks, they still need a preseason, which involves intense training, but also friendly games. And the fear from a lot of um, medical and conditioning experts in the Premier League is that they won't be given that opportunity. Uh, things are going to be rushed back. Like Miguel says, there's such a will to get football back on, to get sport back on, because it is a sense of normalcy. And however wrong we can feel it is, and you know, it often feels so trivial and silly to be speaking about football at a time like this, to be writing about football at a time like this. And I'm sure the football authorities themselves don't want to have to be thinking about football-related solutions at a time like this, but that's their job. They're, we're all forced to sort of still cover this. Um, Miguel's right. Everything I've heard is that games will continue behind closed doors. Um, I think there's going to be an onus on clubs to put out very strong messaging to urge their fans to still stay at home to be safe I think we'll see several campaigns like that I think that will be backed by governmental measures as well in terms of the isolation camps uh, medical professionals and conditioning professionals were saying there is still no way to stop a player contracting the virus and then what that does is forces people into isolation for 14 days, the players and stuff. So if you come back and a few squads get that, uh, you're then back to square zero where you can't actually play games. And that was one of the ideas mute, mooted and it sounds absolutely ridiculous. And I, I was listening to it and I was like, it's crazy. And then, you know, V will, will speak about cricket and, Obviously, cricketers go and spend so much time away on tour. And I think that's where their heads were at, that cricket does this. But obviously, cricket hasn't been doing this during a global pandemic. So, yeah, there's so much to unpick. Um, 
and it seems like every time you talk about or you discuss what people are, are thinking you get absolutely crucified for it but like i said we have no option but to do our jobs yeah, i suppose the big problem with all of this is that we can talk about the conversations going on behind closed doors and we can talk about the plans that are being made but if football does return and then a player is diagnosed with coronavirus and that automatically means one squad's in lockdown for two weeks potentially two squads are in lockdown for two weeks all those plans just completely go out the window that's it yeah i think um we're in a situation at the moment where the knock-on effect you saw it the other week with the Nottingham Forest owner, and I know Arteta's wasn't directly related to that, but that caused Arsenal to do the testing, which then led to Arteta's test, um, which then had the knock-on effect of every every Premier League game being called off. And we are, even when we return behind closed doors or not, we are just one case away from that situation rising again. I think another thing to consider is that you imagine we come back in September or October, the autumn, with a relative state of normality, you know, perhaps fans in grounds, perhaps the country itself is, is no longer under the strict, strict lockdown measures. All the kind of scientific evidence points to the fact that once those measures might be lifted, we might see a rise in cases again. And I think given the, just how much pressure has, has been on football and on, on sporting bodies and authorities during this time, they'd come under that pressure again to immediately close the stadiums and then you suddenly get in another season affected or perhaps, you know, even if we're still trying to play out the end of this season, perhaps that's broken midway through. So with nine games left, we have, we get four games in and then suddenly we go back into lockdown. So I, it's, it's really, it's a, it's a challenging situation for the authorities at the minute and there's no, there's no perfect solution. I mean, one thing is when it does come back, surely it doesn't make that much sense for teams and squads to be travelling particularly long distances, given the nature of the, um, the training and the lockdown camps. So could we see the fixture list maybe move around or is that a complete no at this stage? If you, if you play out the season, do you have to play out the season as it was initially intended? Yeah, I think so. Um, and even like, I suppose, even relatively short distances now to nature, football clubs repair, a lot of them will be in hotels the night before anyway. So either way, there's going to be some sort of logistical issue there. Uh, just one, one thing Melissa was touching on there as well, it kind of raised, I suppose, one of the complications in the argument about finishing the season. And I do think the season should be finished um, because, you know, along the way here, some, you know, ne next season is going to be truncated anyway, so we may, we may as well try and complete one. But just to have a split like this in the season, how much it kind of even distorts the, the usual dynamic of a league campaign, as long as it is anyway. But to have that extended where, you know, a team you played in September, another team could be playing them a year later in the same fix, you know, ostensibly same fixture, you know, away to whoever, I don't know, you know, Sheffield United. And they're just in a completely different um, fitness state, uh, just in terms of kind of momentum or, or psychological dynamic behind the team. Uh, I mean, this goes without saying, obviously, but it, like the situation, you know, it, to it totally changes the, it just distorts the, the, the sport or life in general. But also on, on kind of a more, minute uh, sporting dynamics, it, it distorts those too. I suppose another big problem with all of this is that, you know, all of the clubs and all of the leagues, European leagues are currently attempting to work around this kind of 30th of June deadline, um, which is obviously considered to be the European season's um, end point in, in legal terms. Uh, Chris, do you want to maybe explain why that day is so important and, and what some of the key issues are with 
clubs and leagues having to extend the season beyond June and then into, into July and the summer months? Yeah, well, I did a piece on this this week, just, just looking at it, because I think it's, um, it's something that people might only be familiar with if they play even like games like Football Manager or something. They know all their players' contracts run out on that day. But otherwise, the 30th of June, it just passes by every year, just goes unnoticed. But there are, it is essentially the point where we transition from one season into another. And it, not just in a, in, a very, in a very concrete sense, in a legal sense, this is actually written into the framework of how European football operates. So the biggest issue that everybody knows is the contracts and that, you know, there'll be certain players, for example, at Chelsea, their whole second choice forward line of William, uh, Pedro, Giroud, they're all out of contract. And, and what does that mean for those players? I think players in that situation, you know, there's, there's questions about whether they can play for the club, but there's also quite fundamental questions about whether they are insured if they play for a club, if they get injured, you know, what happens then? Um, you're also looking because the transfer market opens on the 1st of July, that's when registration opens. You're also asking whether that gets moved into September and October. And if that's been moved, can those players who are free agents in a sense, can they move clubs? So there's all those knock-ons, but there's other things as well that are basically written into legal frameworks and contracts that aren't to do with players and transfers and signings, like, for example, sponsorship deals. So um, I think Liverpool are a good example with the Nike and the New Balance uh, situation, where it's, it's still a little bit unclear. I think the sense is that they're, they're going to play in New Balance kits, even though they're supposed to be playing in Nike next season. These are just little things, but it doesn't seem that, especially at this time when there's, you know, there's a global pandemic and a crisis, it doesn't seem important. But these decisions, do they represent millions and millions of pounds that people are going to chase through courts and a lot of lawyers are going to get very rich off. So these, this, these are important matters for football clubs. Um, and, you know, the, fundamentally, if you, if you break that legal contract, if you break that framework, which they get the whole game, the whole European system um, works towards, then suddenly you're asking a lot of questions that are going to run and run and run this season, next season, potentially years from now. You give the example of Chelsea's front line. Could they um, feasibly switch to like month-by-month -month contracts, like kind of, kind of like pay-as-you-play, or is that not really an option? Um, that sounds like a Yeah, yeah. Well, I've asked about this, and it, it certainly seems like it's possible. I think a lot of the... Um, a lot of the players unions like PFA, FIFPRO, who are kind of the global players union, that's, that's the system they're looking at. And I think they'd be willing to do that. But the question is then that you would need, it's been suggested to me that you would need special dispensation from leagues and competitions. And also the problem is that you kind of want to have one rule for everyone rather than picking and choosing deals. So I think Williams even come out and said he would like to stay at Chelsea and he doesn't mind signing a month to month deal and perhaps leaving after that. But that might not be the case for a player who's out of contract at another club who's desperate to leave, um, who would actually like, quite like to move clubs and, and start a new chapter in their career. But if that system was taken across the board, as most kind of legal professionals think it would need to be, then they'd be almost locked out. And that's a restriction on trade. And you get into all these other legal questions. So I think, um, or even from the club's perspective, if you've got a player on your books who's costing you thousands, hundreds of thousands of pounds, uh, 50, 60 grand a week and you want to get rid of that player and suddenly you're told you have to keep him, then clubs are going to challenge that as well. So the problem is that there isn't one hard and fast rule for everybody and, and that's going to cause all these disputes. 
I suppose it's, it's a legal headache, but I mean, it's almost like a kind of moral angle to it as well. Like as a player who's kind of started the season with one club and has a few months remaining, it's going to take quite a lot of gall almost for them to essentially come out after a situation like what we've got and say, oh, do you know what? I want to move clubs. I'm not going to see out the season. <laughs> well, just on that, I and mean, even in relation to the whole kind of issue of uh, legal disputes and I mean, like we've seen with a lot of businesses, like Weatherspoon and some of the Britannia hotels, the optics of any sort of, of trying to exploit what the, these terms under what would be a, a normal situation, I think could come back to bite people badly if they yeah. try anything on like that. So that is one potential guard against, this, against this, this, these sort of issues. Well, yeah, what... I think, sorry, I think that... It's, it's similar to the to the arguments people have about whether leagues finish or not. Ultimately, I think there's going to be a point where people need to accept that these are extraordinary circumstances and that compromises need to be made. And you do get a sense that there is a general willingness and a general understanding about that. But also, fundamentally, nobody wants to be that one person who sticks their hand up and says, yeah, I'll take the hit for this. So, you, you know, it's going to take, and it's going to take a lot of, lot of clubs, a lot of players, a lot of, uh, you know, just just interested parties and stakeholders to do that in order for the situation to be resolved. What's the um, the latest in the transfer window? Just before we head into a break, um, again, I mean, <laughs> it's a subject that I guess people don't want to be talking about, but it's going to have huge ramifications. What's the kind of latest chatter around? You know, when it will take place, if it takes place, and how it impacts on transfer windows going forward. It's entirely dependent on when the. Uh... The season, domestic season, is actually finished. I mean, that's what they—that's why UEFA were so intent on coordination at the meeting last Tuesday. Um, but they have to have a degree of flexibility about this, and it's probably—it's another one of those issues that probably really can't even begin to be sorted for. Well, we have to see the way the way they'll analyze another month. Okay, cheers, mix. Uh, we're going to head to a quick break. Uh, don't go anywhere, uh, even though you you physically can't. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome back to the Indie Football Podcast. Moving on, uh, over the weekend it was announced that Manchester United and Manchester City had come together to donate a combined £100,000 to local food banks. Uh, this is obviously a great gesture and was met with a very positive reception. But Miguel, a couple of days ago you wrote a piece saying that perhaps our richest club should be doing a little bit more in the current, in the current climate. Well, the thing that struck me about it, especially in all the reaction to it, and the praise. And the praise, let's remember, came because 
uh, they actually issued press releases about this. Uh, they're announcing that they were going to uh, donate this money to, to the uh, local Manchester Food Bank. Um, obviously, all sorts of quotes and press release from people involved, like Tussle Association, about the, the, or the Tussle Trust, sorry, about the enormous helps, help it makes. And you, a very generous interpretation of that is that you could argue that by, first of all, re releasing this press release under the whole banner of A City United, you encourage collaboration at these difficult times. And also, and I think this is important to be fair, you provoke people with the means to actually do similar. But then of course, the, the flip side to that is, uh, as massive a contribution as this is for the food bank, it's almost a negligible amount given the huge resources that Manchester United and Manchester City have. Um, like, I mean, it, it, it doesn't really, I mean, they, they essentially have the means to do far much more. I mean, given the fact they release a press release like, like this, it begs the question of whether any sort of charitable act of clubs do is a wonder, or actually, given they are theoretically and idealistically social institutions whose entire identity comes out of the community they have evolved and grown from within, they actually have a far greater responsibility to do more. Uh, and I think actually it's interesting that some individuals in the game have actually embarrassed some of the clubs they work for a little bit. If you see like Pep Guardiola, the news last night that he donated one million, um, the Bayern Munich players as well, uh, with, with, with a similar contribution. Uh, yeah, and I think, well, first of all, it should be added that the game, the top level of the game has a duty to the structured game as a whole. There should be more solidarity funds set up. But even beyond that, given the crisis we're in, and, and ultimately have an industry here that still has hundreds of millions going into it and only a small fraction coming out, you know, the club's place in the community should be put under greater scrutiny in that sense. And I think more of that money could be going to what are now essential, um, essential causes. And causes also, let's not forget that the quicker this is solved, and it can be solved quicker through donations and funding, the quicker these clubs can go back to normal and earning the hundreds of millions that they usually do. And, and just, I, mean, I suppose, I summed up the piece, or I'm kind of building myself into a little bit of fury here. Uh, but <laughs> ultimately, given clubs hark on so much about the community work to do, and some of them do a lot of good work, but it is kind of time to put up or shut up in that regard, whether you're just kind of a, a global entity, is essential, a content, a content producer, or else you are really a, a fundamental to the fabric of community. Yeah, Fish, do you think a donation like this, does it prove that Premier League clubs remain social institutions? Or does it maybe suggest the opposite, that, you know, they can make a, a donation like this and it's almost like, oh, our, our work is done? I don't know. I think a lot of times football clubs and I suppose other institutions or other sporting teams where there is a lot of money in the game and you can you know, move over to the NFL and have many examples there. I think what they try and do first and foremost is they try and insulate their players from being in a situation that we saw a few years ago in this country where there was a, a lot of talk around how footballers should donate a certain amount of their wages to nurses, for example, or other worthwhile causes because... Ultimately, they don't want to be seen to leave their players open to ridicule is not the right word, but I suppose being shamed because essentially they've the people above the players have created this ecosystem where the players are really well paid, and so to then leave them open to be shot at is is an issue for them. Well, it eventually, becomes an issue for them. So I so you often see clubs and yeah, you often see clubs doing this by way of saying we're all doing this together. It is not on 
player X, who's earning so much amount of money. This is not on player Y, who's our best player. This is all of us coming together and making a donation of this ilk. Um, and I suppose, yeah, you end up in a situation where it's, as Biggs touched on, you know, it's, it's a great gesture. And yet at the same time, it's quite embarrassing that two clubs who've spent so much money on just recruiting players alone have, you know, in, in you know, relatively, I suppose, donated such a paltry sum. Um, I think the intention, as, as Mig said, I'm you know, basically stealing lines from Mig's here, but as he said, it's kind of, the, the point is to have that knock-on effect. And if we have seen more players and more teams come out and make similar, well, more sizable donations, then, then great, because we've already started that movement. And it'll end up being quite cyclical. And you also got to bear in mind that clubs like Manchester United and Manchester City would have been doing their own things behind closed doors that wouldn't have necessarily reached the public. Yeah you know, public domain anyway. So I suppose this is probably the wrong time to, to point fingers and say, like, you could do more, you could do more. But I think it does show that sometimes clubs feel compelled to, you know, publicise things like this when yeah. I think they, they could do with a bit more, being a bit more PR savvy, even in a time where we need to be a bit more open and honest with each other. It was really the, the nation of press release that got me thinking about it. Yeah. And I, because it, it was almost, look, aren't we wonderful? And, and the thing about that is, I mean, if, you, if United put out Marcus Rashford and Jesse Lingard playing FIFA for about three hours and got it sponsored or something like that, or, or some, some sort of even like subscription-free fee to MUTV just to watch that with the knowledge that all money would be going to charity, they'd probably raise much more than 50 grand, which is what the club has put forward to the food bank. To, to be honest, though... Sorry. To sort of come to their defense here there was a campaign with the city food banks and united food banks joining forces and going on twitter and saying they they implore the clubs to come together and make these donations and i think the club were getting loads of requests from people asking you know are you making a donation when will you be making a donation how much and i think a press release is one way to get the message out to everyone and also for those food banks to put the message out there as well uh, with one set of communication. In doing the piece about whether clubs would be paying their uh, match day casual and non-match day casual workers, I found that as well. Clubs have to be so careful with how they word things because obviously at this time it's so sensitive and you know everybody's waiting to pull you up on something or whatever so i can understand from that respect why they've put out a press release because a lot of clubs have been communicating also via press releases or statements on their website with all the measures they're putting in place because they get asked every day what are you doing i wanted to come on to that piece next mel actually um what did you find obviously earlier in the week you wrote a piece on uh how Premier League clubs are kind of uh, treating their, their match day staff, their casual staff, people like stewards or people who work in the bars at, at football matches. Um, what were your findings uh, from that piece and, and how are those workers being um, assisted by Premier League clubs during, uh, during this pandemic? I think initially it was obviously so difficult because it was fresh when I asked the question, um, the Premier League hadn't had their uh, Thursday meeting yet. Clubs didn't know what was going to happen in the meeting, let alone how they handle um, anything really 
let alone you know paying people but i found largely a willingness um to come to a conclusion there were discussions with hr personnel at a lot of clubs there were um doing due diligence on how much casual workers had worked either match day or non-match day to try and see what was an average amount they could come up with um there were some clubs who admitted that they wouldn't really be in as good a financial position as the bigger clubs to to make a quicker resolution they'd have to think harder about it because of how much money they've spent to either you know guarantee their premier league safety or try to guarantee it um i think the disappointing thing is there are some big clubs who have still not made the commitment yet uh chelsea manchester city leicester city for example haven't yet said one way or another whether they will i thought brighton were excellent they were out early in the midst of all the chaos and the commotion and the uncertainty they went strong and they said we will be taking care of our staff because while we don't understand how to deal with anything that's going on we know that for them this is an even scarier time um due to loss of income and ultimately loss of jobs and stuff um and a lot of the clubs have followed suit from there liverpool manchester united wolves wolves were also quite early to declare at crystal palace as well um but yeah i still think clubs can be doing enough or or can be doing more i think one of the good things has been their community outreach beyond the food banks you know checking in on um season ticket holders who are really elderly checking if they need help with their shopping stuff like that so i think there's sometimes we look at them and we just think oh you have all this money do more but the complexities of trying to deal with the situation at all levels and st- still being able to you know give space and give time back and and try and solve the community issues they they have been doing that and willing to do that brilliant um before we wrap up i wanted to come to you vish um obviously you've got a slightly wider remit than these guys in terms of the sports you write about you've been writing a lot about how cricket is dealing with the pandemic um a little bit about the olympics too um so given that you have that kind of slightly wider brief um do you feel that top level football is well positioned to deal with the current crisis um in comparison to these these other sports that obviously don't have maybe the financial advantages or the the support base um i i'd say the the top level of football has enough in place to to deal with what's going on at the moment i think if you consider the money that their well the, the the disposable income that these clubs have at least makes things like having uh you know these various isolation camps and being able to you know rent out entire floors of hotels exclusively for their players and staff you know if you live if you go down into the championship you know the majority of the clubs won't have those means anyway so i suppose there's a bit of a disparity there but in terms of in terms of other sports the olympics were well presented quite an interesting quandary really because for for a number of sports there was obviously a sense of or for rather for a number of athletes there was obviously a sense of relief that they weren't being asked to go and compete in japan not not least because of the issues around facilities shutting down but also the the fear of um, while, the, while they say that the virus is dying down over there in, in China and Japan, there's no guarantee that it will be gone outright by the time the Olympics roll around at the end of July. 
Um, and I think some people were glad of the clarity of, of knowing that they didn't you know, necessarily need to put themselves in that risk and also to go into Olympics without training properly and preparing properly. Then you also get the flip side of it where for sports where the Olympics you know, is the pinnacle, people were in a situation where, especially if they're in the latter end of their career, depending on the sport they're in, where they actually had to weigh up whether it was not just worth the risk of, you know, or rather it was always going to be worth the risk of going because they'd been building up to it and it would have been, say, their last Olympics. Uh, Susanna Townsend, who plays for the Team GB um, women's hockey team, um, she's 30 now and she had looked at this Olympics as, as her last one. She's, um, you know, she was going to retire at the end of it. Now she's going to consider whether she's going to, wants to put herself through another year of toil just to, just to get to 2021. <laughs> Um, and it's going to afflict, afflict female athletes a lot worse than it does men. If you look at female athletes over the course of Olympics, and I'm talking specifically of sports where Olympics are the pinnacle, there's a huge dropout because of, I suppose, basic reasons like wanting to start a family and things like that. So it'll be interesting to see what kind of, you know, I suppose what the fallout will be and, and what kind of turnaround we'll get because we'll get athletes dropping out and we'll also get those athletes who didn't quite make it, those athletes who might have been injured as well, kind of coming in and, and taking their positions. Um, with regards to cricket, cricket's a little bit different when you consider the fact that what money the ECB had maybe a few years ago would have been enough to keep the county safe through a kind of unseen pandemic such as this. And yet with the advent of the 100 and the money that's thrown into that, they need probably two months of cricket somehow, whether it's between, well, you know, between now and the end of October. Two months probably to guarantee that they can get things like the 100 and the T20s in just so they can make enough money just to keep afloat all 18 counties into next season. Uh, the 100 obviously only involves eight teams, eight new teams, but because of various broadcast deals and 1.1 billion deals signed with that, as, I suppose, as the main marquee event back in 2017, they need to have something on TV. So it doesn't matter if it's behind closed doors. There's certain games, certain number of games that has to be on TV in order for them to, so I suppose, not recruit, but just be entitled to some of the money they will end up, they were going to end up with at the end of this summer. And then the T20 Blast will then have 18 teams involved, all 18 counties, and therefore provide them with some kind of sustenance into the winter at least. But then even that has to be, you know, a lot of those clubs rely on the T20 Blast happening in front of crowds so they can bring in gate receipts and, and things like that and sell, you know, sell enough on concessions. Then when you consider some of the lower counties who actually use their grounds to hire out to as venues essentially for weddings and concerts and things like that if there's if it's behind closed doors and presumably that's because there's still an issue around crowds and things like that in which case you can't really have a wedding you can't really have a concert you can't have anything like that and so they lose a bit of their income that way so you know cricket's probably the best sorry football rather is probably the best place of all the of all the sports in this country um with regards to the olympics obviously slightly different because of how it's structured in terms of funding and things like that. Um, cricket probably as something that might not happen at all uh, is of those three you mentioned is probably in um, the most precarious state right now. Yeah. If, I mean, it's massive if, but if stuff does start coming back this summer and, you know, the football starts up again and we're, we've, we've got this crazy fixture list because teams are like shoving in matches and the cricket comes back in some form and all the, tennis uh grand slams get shoved into the space of two or three months it's going to be the most crazy sporting summer 
in history. And potentially it'll be also be an end point because then if countries going back into uh, self-isolation style measures for the winter, there's going to be this kind of bizarre two or three month window when every sport is just trying to make as much money as possible uh, yeah. before they all shut up shop again. I think there's already an acceptance, certainly within football, uh, stuff like Premier League 2021 or whatever it is, um, Champions League 2021, both of those are going to have to be truncated in some way. We could well have a 19-game season uh, where there's some kind of agreement on home and away games, but the Champions League might have to go to all knockout, which would be great. Um, but yeah, I think there's, next season is obviously going to be usually affected as well in that way. And so even allowing for that, there's probably still only so much sport they can cram in. Thank you. Sadly, that is all we have time for this week. Be sure to follow Indie Football on social media to keep up to date with everything going on. Um, and also, The Independent has launched a new podcast. It's called The Independent Coronavirus Podcast. Uh, you can find it wherever you find this podcast, uh, places like Apple, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you listen. Uh, and it's all about the current pandemic. It's going to have different experts on every single day delving into the crisis and all of the latest news. Uh, be sure to check that out and we will see you in all the usual places next week. Stay safe. Goodbye. Goodbye.